Do you remember that time when your ex was arrested for murdering 33 young men and 26 of them were buried under the crawl space of what was then your marital home? Yeah, me either. Now, we continually discuss the victims in this case, the young men that lost their lives, the families that were left behind, the young men who were ensnared by the creep and who were often raped and assaulted, but somehow lived to tell the tale. But what about Carol Hoff? Who is Carol Hoff, Bob, you may be asking? Well, Carol was Gacy's second wife. Yes, second. See, Gacy had been married previously to Marilyn Myers, who we've mentioned earlier in the season. She was the woman whose father owned the Kentucky Fried Chicken franchises back in Iowa. Gacy and Marilyn had two children together. Talk about victims. Can you even imagine? Darren has been very keen on trying to get these two on the podcast but we have discussed the possibility that they may have been shielded by their mother and everyone else for that matter, to the fact that Gacy was their father. Talk about a potentially incredibly awkward conversation. I can't say that I would enjoy being the guy to disclose that horrible family secret to Gacy's two kids. If you recall, Marilyn divorced Gacy shortly after he was convicted of the sodomy charges back in Waterloo, Iowa in 68. And some 10 years later, when her ex-husband was arrested and the nightmare was beginning to unfold, the state was, of course, very interested in having her testify at trial. However, her then-husband filed a motion to quash the state's subpoena, directing her to testify, as he did not want to have his wife or the kids subjected to having their lives broadcast to the world, including the fact that she was once married to the creep. So, Bill Kunkel? Yeah, he was adamant about having her testify. And ultimately, he filed a rule to show cause to hold the husband in contempt of court for failing to follow the court order directing Marilyn to appear. The judge in Iowa did, in fact, find him in contempt and proceeded to throw him in the county lockup with his key to freedom being giving up his wife's location. He just wouldn't do it. So, in jail is where he sat for months. Of course, you know, she didn't show up to testify at trial, though. She said she would. but So we had gone through all the interstate compact stuff and had everything in line uh, to force her to come here and, and get on the stand. And so the sheriff uh, brought the husband before a, a Blackhawk County judge, and the judge says, okay, where is she? And he says, I'm not going to tell you. And he said, okay, you're in contempt of my uh, orders here. Uh, I find you in uh, direct contempt of this court, and uh, you will remain in custody until you uh, uh, cure your contempt. I locked him up. So everybody sort of forgot about that, at least I did. And uh, I'm going to say two weeks after the trial was over or so, I get a call from a uh, correctional guy in uh, the jail in Waterloo, Iowa, in Blackhawk County, and uh, we're chatting about the case. Then he says, well, look, uh, what do you want us to do with this guy? I said, what guy? He says, the husband. What do you mean, the husband? He says, well, we've still got him in custody here. <laughs> I said, well, let him go. <laughs> he did about eight weeks for not telling where the, his wife was think that he had a lot to do with that. I think she didn't, you know, the kid, there's two kids involved here. I mean, I can understand it. He didn't want to be reading about all this stuff and have all the neighbors reading about this stuff and have the neighbor's kids reading about this stuff in the Waterloo papers. It's been a big story out there. 
So, uh, no, there's no way he wanted that to happen. I'm not sure on reflection whether she did either. So, so after Gacy was released, after a year and a half of his 10-year sentence, and he decided to move back to the Chicagoland area, he then married Carol in June of 1972. Marty Zielinski, who you've heard from in the pod, was the photographer for the wedding. Gacy and his mother Marion had moved into the house in Somerdale in August of 71, which the creep had just purchased. Remember, it was January of 1972 when Gacy snatched up Timothy McCoy from the Greyhound bus station in Chicago, where he proceeded to kill him and bury him down in the crawl. So when Carol moved into the house, at least according to Gacy, he had just killed Tim McCoy. The questions that are raised about Carol and her marriage to Gacy always center around how. How did she not know what was going on with her husband? How did she not smell the rotting corpse? How did she not question his whereabouts when he would be out and about at all hours of the night during their marriage? And they are all legitimate questions. Was it willful blindness? Or was she literally just clueless? Do you have any more homosexual encounters between that time and the time you married Carol? No. When did Carol move in? Carol moved in in February of 72. Yeah. And we were and married we were in July. Married July of 72. How do you and Carol make love? Anything kinky or just straight uh, love making? Yeah. Guy on top of girl? Do you do any, any other positions? No. Both in bed. Carol didn't get into much oral sex because she was always forced into it from her first husband. I think the first time she ever went down on me was in the, uh, the living room. I had told you when, when she moved in and her mother moved in, my mother was there. And the only time Carol and I ever had, and of course her two children were there. So the only time her and I ever got it on was when her mother and my mother went to bingo on Friday night. We'd get the kids in bed early. Were they living with, your mother was living with you? in February of 72, right? Did Carol's mother move in also after yeah. you got married? No, 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 before. She before moved in in February also, so you had two mother, a mother-in-law, your mother, and two children in that house? Right. Carol and I never slept together. How long was it like that? Well, we got married in July, July 1st of 72, and my mother moved out in July because she didn't think that there should be two women running the house. All right. And it was with the understanding that Carol's mother's divorce was coming through in August, and she was going to go move out, too. Did she? In fact, my mother wanted her to move in. Did she move out? No. How long was she there? She stayed almost a year. Well, let's see. After 11 months, I had a, a stroke or something at the house, and it was... That, that happened in June. We made a stroke. I almost died. What happened? I had cardiac arrest or something. Did you go to a hospital? Oh, yeah. The, the uh, Norwood Park Inhalation worked on me for two and a half hours. And they had thought I was already dead Did because I had vomited. This would be in June of 73 then? Yeah. And what hospital did you go to? Edgewater. Were you taking drugs? Dr. Levy came out to the house at four in the morning. And he was so goddamn pissed off because I was having the attack. And her mother laid in the, in the bed and never Were even got up. taking drugs then? Uh, no, that's right. Were drinking before you had the attack? No. It just came out all at once? 
Carol and I were having some arguments or something about her mother. I was upset about it. You're having arguments about her mother. Yeah. Do you want to do something to Carol? What do you mean? Do I want to do something? Do you think of hurting her? No, never. Did you ever strike either your first or your second wife? No. So yes, at some point in time, Gacy had his mother Marion, his future wife Carol, Carol's two children from a prior marriage, and her mother living in the house. What? Yeah. We know that Gacy was a planner, and we also know that Carol was nothing more than a beard to help disguise the fact that Gacy was gay. And considering the fact that he'd already killed McCoy, and if we were to believe that that was his first victim, which, for the record... I do not believe having these three women and two children living in his house would seem to be very bad planning. And as far as what has been disclosed about this case over the past 40 plus years, McCoy was killed in early of 72. The second unidentified victim who was buried under the barbecue pit area was killed sometime between 72 and 75. And Johnny Bukovich, who was killed in July of 1975, now, we're being led to believe that the creep was able to control his urges in comparison to his later activity post-divorce to the extent that he only killed these three young men between 72 and 75. This narrative has never sat well with me, as I find it implausible. Now, you can only imagine how absolutely relentless the press was in trying to interview Carol, because, well, the public back then had the exact same questions and curiosities about Carol and her time with Gacy that we have now. And finally, after dodging the press for as long as she possibly could, reporter Rosalind Rossi of the Chicago Sun-Times finally got her to speak on the one condition that her maiden name of Hoff was used in the article instead of Gacy. Now, at the time that Carol is being interviewed, the identification of the victims is actively going on, and we are all aware of how difficult and slow-moving that process has been. And this fact gives us some context in some of what she has to say. So, while standing in the doorway of her townhouse, the first thing she mentions is that what worries her most is whether or not her ex-husband was killing these young men while she was living in the house? And the answer to that is a definitive yes. And almost as if a light switch in her mind has been switched on, she goes on to reflect on what was going on during the time that she was married to the creep. So Carol proceeds to tell Rossi, quote, he used to go out late at night and come back late. I'd hear his car go in the garage, but I'd never hear him come in the house. And I'm a light sleeper. One time I asked him what went on in that garage, and he said that he had wallpaper books in there that he was checking on. End quote. What must have Rosalind Rossi been thinking as she was jotting down these quotes, keeping in mind that she had already spoken with a Cook County Sheriff police officer who had told her that Carol had told them that Gacy had been bringing young boys into the garage late at night, and then would drive them home. Carolyn continued, quote, It always had to do with work. At 1 a.m., I'd be in bed, and I'd hear him come in 
and take a shower. So I'd think he'd be getting ready to come to bed. And then he'd come out of the bathroom all dressed up. And I'd ask him where he was going so late. And he'd say that he had to go to meet a client. A lot of times he'd leave at 1 o'clock in the morning and come back at 6 a.m. And then shower and then go straight to work. You're crazy, I'd tell him. But I figured he was old enough to know what he was doing. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I've been married for a long time. And there is no way in hell that if I was pulling this type of shit... Not occasionally, but all the time that my wife would not be so far up my ass that I would have to have her surgically removed. Now, Gacy claimed to have never laid a finger on Carol. So the concept that she was a kept woman and was being controlled by a narcissistic sociopath, despite the fact that that is exactly what he was, does not hold water. If she had meaningfully questioned his activities she would have put two and two together. Further, I have to believe that they were constantly arguing about these late-night activities, despite what she says to the reporter. And the smell from McCoy was a thing. She often complained that it smelled like death early on, literally in the house. So much so that Gacy finally covered the grave with concrete. Yeah, I'm going to have to go with the willful blindness concept here when it comes to Carol. I think I once related, I related to Carol that I had killed somebody. There were times I was trying to communicate to Carol about it, but she, she, uh, I don't know if she was just disinterested or just didn't want to understand. Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 29. Carol of the Spells. We left off last episode on January 30th, with Judge Garippo having set the matter over for hearing on the defense's motions to quash and suppress until February 16th of 1979. Also pending was the motion made by the defense to evaluate Gacy's competency to stand trial. The evaluation to determine competency is performed by a doctor that is, for all intents and purposes, employed by the state, as opposed to one that's performed by a private doctor that has been retained by the defense. This is normally how it's done, meaning that it's the state's doctor that performs these evaluations, and these competency evaluations are extremely important in the case being able to move forward. Because if a defendant is found to be incompetent, the case comes to a screeching halt for an indefinite period of time, maybe years, because the trial cannot proceed until such time as the defendant is found to be competent to stand trial. Now, as you can imagine, under no circumstances does the state desire to have the trial delayed for one minute, let alone for an undetermined period of time, while doctors are working feverishly to make Gacy quote, competent. If this seems to you to be an inexact science, quote, making someone competent, well, that's because it is. And the standards that are used to determine fitness or competency to stand trial are relatively low. 
as you will see, imminently. Back to the courtroom on 26 and Cal, as it fills up to the brim on February 16th of 1979, Judge Garippo takes his seat upon his lofty perch, and the bailiff calls the court to order. Kunkel and his team are seated at the state's table, and Mata, Amaranti, and Gacy are seated at defense counsel table. Garippo? He wastes no time and jumps right in. Quote, Before we begin our hearing on the motions, I have a report from Dr. Robert Reifman, director of the Psychiatric Institute, which reads as follows. Quote, Pursuant to your honor's order, the above-named defendant has been examined by the undersigned psychiatrist. Based on the above examination, it is my opinion that this defendant is mentally fit to stand trial. He understands the nature of the charges and proceedings and is able to assist counsel in his own defense. So there's that. In the blink of an eye, a man that is alleged to have killed 29 young men at this point and has buried 26 of them under his home has been found competent to stand trial. Now, you heard Garippo read Dr. Reifman's findings, which were that Gacy understood the charges against him, understands the proceedings, such as what a judge or jury is, what their role in the cases are, and that he is able to assist his attorneys in his own defense, which includes being able to plan legal strategy and be able to recall and relate pertinent facts and events, and his potential motives and actions at the time of the offenses. Now, we've been listening to Gacy speak with my father over the course of this entire season, and whether or not Gacy has the ability to recall and relate pertinent facts and events is questionable at best. He seems to be claiming to have little or no recollection of any of the killings themselves. It's always Gacy stating that he's surmising based on the fact that there were dead bodies in the house when he woke up the following morning. So he is assuming that he killed them, but has no independent recollection of actually killing them. Now, if one were to believe that Gacy is completely full of shit with respect to everything that he's saying, well, then I've got no problem with the finding that he is fit to stand trial. But if you were of the mindset that he may not be completely full of shit and that maybe he in fact was blackout drunk when he was killing the victims, then I would argue that he is not fit to stand trial. Now, you've heard much of the same of what I've heard, and I happen to think that it falls somewhere in the middle. I think that it's completely plausible that Gacy was blacked out on booze and drugs when he was committing the murders. But I've also heard my father catch him repeatedly saying that he doesn't recall anything about the murder. But then in the next breath, my father asks him about a detail, which he readily supplies an answer that would indicate that he remembers everything quite clearly. It's a tough call as Gacy's defense attorney, whether or not to challenge the finding that he is fit to stand trial. And that is because they are attempting the insanity defense. And yes, one could be found fit to stand trial and still be found innocent by reason of insanity, as incongruous as that may seem. They are two completely different legal standards, which must be met. So when Garippo, after reading Reifman's report, asks both the defense and the state whether they would like to conduct a hearing on the finding of fitness, the state, of course, has zero desire to challenge the finding. But what about the defense? Well, 
My father informs Garippo that the defense does not desire a hearing at this time either. Surprising? Mildly. But my father has been in the game long enough to know that these findings of fitness are basically pro forma, a metaphorical rubber stamp, and to try and fight the finding would amount to nothing more than wasting time, because Garippo, by law, would have to allow the hearing to move forward. But nothing exists on the face of the earth that would convince him to ultimately reject Reifman's finding. So there you go. The creep is fit to stand trial. And Garippo is ready to move on. Right now, to the motions to quash and suppress. Now, to the motions to quash and suppress. The only question is what order they should be heard. The defense, or at least Amaranti, wants them heard chronologically, meaning the motion to quash the warrant and suppress evidence based on the December 13th search. Then the motion to quash the arrest of December 21st. Garippo listens to Amaranti intently and then rejects this notion, stating that the facts that lead up to the arrest begin before December 13th. And that's why I think it's better to start with the motion to quash the arrest. Amaranti concedes the point. Not like he has a choice. Garippo inquires of the state whether the cops needed are in fact there, available to testify. The state informs the judge that in fact, they are. Now, with a motion to quash the arrest, the initial burden lies with the defense to show the court that the cops lacked probable cause to have the arrest warrant issue. Amaranti gives a brief opening argument. He states that it's a three-pronged argument. First, that the Desplaines Police Department had no legal authority to arrest the defendant when, in fact, they arrested him. Second, that if they did have the authority to arrest him, they had no probable cause to do so. And finally, that if they did have probable cause, the arrest itself was merely a subterfuge, pretext, or a ploy based on the underlying investigation that was going on at the time of the arrest. Remember, folks, Gacy was originally arrested for the weed charge, not for the murder and abduction of Rob Peast. That didn't happen until after the second search warrant on the home on December 21st at about 10.30 at night when Gacy had already been in custody for about 13 hours. Also, just for your own edification, hearings like this are basically mini-trials with witnesses being called who will go through both a direct examination and a cross-examination. Now, normally, either the state or the defense calls its own witnesses, and they guide them through a direct examination, which does not allow for leading questions. Now, a leading question is a question that prompts or encourages a desired response. Those questions are reserved for cross-examination. So on direct examinations, the questions are left open-ended for the witness to answer. Normally, it would be the state calling the cop as its first witness. But because it's the defense's motion and they have the initial burden, they're having to go through the cumbersome and awkward task of calling an otherwise adverse witness to struggle through a direct examination, as opposed to being able to grill them during a cross-examination. So all that being said, Amaranti calls the first witness to the stand, who happens to be investigator Dave Hackmeister. 
You guys remember Dave, right? Now, as opposed to reading through the entire transcript of the hearing, I'm going to pick and choose the most pertinent parts so that you can get the thrust of the motions. Remember, Amaranti is asking the questions and Hackmeister is answering them. So I'll go through it like this. Question, how did you become involved in the case? Answer, I was told to begin a surveillance at midnight on the 15th of December, 1978. Question, and upon whom was that surveillance for? Answer, John Wayne Gacy Jr. Question, that was in regard to what, sir? Answer, that was in regards to the investigation of a missing person. Question, who else was assigned to that surveillance besides you? Answer, it was myself, Officer Schultz, Officer Albrecht, Officer Robinson, and Sergeant Lang. Now, I'm hoping that you're kind of getting the hang of this, because what I'm going to start doing now is stop saying question and then answer, and I'm going to have it flow as if it's a natural narrative. Amaranti continues. Okay, when did that surveillance end? Do you remember? Uh, the surveillance ended, uh, it would have been sometime on the 21st of December. Okay, at approximately what time? Ah, at about 1 p.m. on the 21st of December. Okay. Now, between the time that you were assigned to surveillance on December 15th, 1978, and December 21st of 1978, you say that your surveillance of Mr. Gacy was continuous. Yes, it was. What was the nature of the surveillance? Well, it was surveillance to watch the activities of Mr. Gacy. And you were tailing him. That's correct. Now, did you consider, Investigator Hackmeister, that the nature of the surveillance was one of great magnitude? Yeah, I would. Now, as part of your investigation, did you learn that Mr. Gacy was in fact in the Desplaines police station on December 13th? That's correct. Was he charged with anything on December 13th? No, he wasn't. Did your investigation also reveal that a search was conducted of Mr. Gacy's residence pursuant to a search warrant on December 13th? I, I wouldn't know the exact date offhand. But there had been a search conducted. That's correct. Officer Hackmeister, calling your attention to December 21st, 1978, at approximately 12.15 p.m., did you have the occasion to arrest Mr. Gacy? Yes, I did. At the time of the arrest, did you have a warrant for his arrest? No, I did not. At the time of his arrest, did you have a search warrant in your possession? No, I didn't. Where was he arrested? Well, he was arrested in the area of Oakton and Milwaukee in Niles, Illinois. Okay, so immediately prior to Mr. Gacy being arrested at Oakton and Milwaukee, what was he doing? Well, he was in his vehicle as a passenger. Okay, and at any time did you observe him as a passenger in that vehicle in violation of any state, federal, or city laws? No. Now, at this point, Amaranti has done some good work to establish that at the time of the arrest, that Gacy was known to have broken no laws. He goes on to question Hackmeister about where Gacy was brought once he was arrested trying to establish that even though Hackmeister is claiming that he was arrested in Niles, that he was actually arrested in uncorporated displays. He is ultimately able to get Hackmeister to admit that, in fact, 
unincorporated Des Plaines is under the jurisdiction of the Cook County Sheriff's Police, not the Des Plaines Police. This entire line of questioning is going towards the question of authority, meaning did Des Plaines have the authority to make the arrest of Gacy outside of their own jurisdiction? Amaranti continues to make some headway with Hackmeister. Do you know if there's any reason that pursuant to the arrest of Mr. Gacy in Niles, Illinois, that he was not in fact transported to the Niles Police Department? No, I don't. Okay, so how far were you from the Niles Police Department when he was arrested? I'm not really sure. Uh, about four blocks, would you say? Mm, approximately. Now, how far were you from the Displains Police Department? Uh, a couple miles, maybe. Now, was your surveillance investigation regarding the missing youth from Displains coming out of the Displains Police Department or coming out of the Niles Police Department? Displains. Okay. Up until the time of his arrest, would you say that Mr. Gacy was the only suspect in the investigation that you were carrying on regarding the missing youth? I really don't know. At the time of the arrest at 12.15 p.m., Investigator Hackmeister, was Mr. Gacy in fact charged with an offense in relation to your investigation on the missing boy? No, it had no relation with the original case. Well, what was he charged with? Possession of marijuana. At the time of your arrest at 12.15 p.m., did you observe him from your vehicle as a passenger in his vehicle in possession of marijuana? No, I didn't. Investigator Hackmeister, subsequent to that arrest, was any evidence secured or obtained from either the person of Mr. Gacy, either physical or verbal evidence, that would have been incriminating to him in regards to your underlying investigation on a missing person? No. So, no statements were obtained while he was in custody. No evidence was obtained from him while he was in custody on the marijuana charge. In relation to the missing person? No. How long would you say that Mr. Gacy was in custody on the marijuana charge? Approximately 10 hours. Was he subsequently charged with something else? Yes, he was. During his time in custody on the marijuana charge, was he ever free to leave the station? No. And that subsequent charge would have been related to your underlying investigation. Isn't that correct? That's correct. Okay. Was it something that your investigation revealed that was learned while he was in custody? Yes. I, I believe the second warrant. What time was the second search warrant issued? I don't know. Do you know if it was issued while Mr. Gacy was in custody? Yes, it was. So, Amaranti then tries to nail Hackmeister on the alleged smell that Officer Schultz claimed to have smelled when he was in Gacy's house on the 19th of December, and which was the second basis for the warrant of December 21st, along with the photo receipt. Hackmeister claimed ignorance of having knowledge of any of those details. And I'll tell you, it sure would have been nice to either have Schultz or Robinson there to follow up on those questions. Or even better, would have been evidence tech Carl Humbert, who was actually down in the crawl on December 13th and didn't smell anything even close 
to resembling a rotting corpse. Maybe he'll call him in the next motion. Maybe not. All in all, Amaranti did a pretty nice job establishing the state appears to have some issues with the initial arrest on the 21st. Now, as far as this first witness goes, it's now Sullivan's turn to try and rehabilitate his witness. In a somewhat curious move, Sullivan decides to first cover Gacy's infamous overnight visit to Amaranti's office from the 20th until the morning of the 21st over Amaranti's objection, who is stating that the questioning goes beyond the scope of the direct examination. Grippo rejects this argument, reminding Amaranti that he went all the way back to December 15th during his direct. Objection overruled. Sullivan then turns to Gacy's little stop at the gas station, where he met with Lance Jacobson. Question, when Mr. Gacy arrived at the gas station investigator, what in fact did he do at that time? Answer, when we first arrived at the gas station, well, we had a conversation with Mr. Gacy regarding his driving. We spoke for quite some time. Question, did he have any other conversations with anyone else at the gas station? Answer, yes. He was speaking with the gas station attendant, uh, a Lance Jacobson. Question. Investigator, would you tell his honor, Judge Garippo, what you observed while he was talking with Mr. Jacobson? Yes, I, I was on the west side of the gas station in the area of the gas pumps. I observed Mr. Gacy take from his pocket a plastic bag which appeared to contain marijuana cigarettes. Okay, now approximately how far were you from him at this time? Approximately 10 to 15 feet. Sullivan then goes through Hackmeister's knowledge and experience with regards to recognizing rolled marijuana cigarettes. Hackmeister then testifies that initially this conversation between Gacy and Jacobson was taking place outside before the conversation ended up moving inside the station. He claims that he sees Gacy from outside the station, once again, take the plastic baggie of joints from his pocket Yet this time, he places them in Jacobson's pocket. Hackmeister then testifies that he observes Gacy leave the station and get back into his vehicle, and then proceed to leave the station with Albrecht in tow. Now, what did you do then, investigator? At that time, I went back into the gas station to recover the substance I believed to be marijuana. And from who did you recover that? I recovered it from the owner of the gas station. That owner tell you where he got it? Yes, he did. He told me that his employee, Lance Jacobson, had given it to him. Did you have occasion subsequent to that, investigator, to talk to Mr. Jacobson? Yes, I did. Where did he tell you he got it? He stated that Mr. Gacy had put it in his pocket. Sullivan then asks Hackmeister if the green leafy substance had been analyzed. Hackmeister begins to state that it was analyzed before... Amaranti objects, the basis being that they couldn't have had time to analyze the weed prior to the arrest, which was like three hours. Gerbo didn't even need to hear the full objection. He sustains the objection. Sullivan then goes on to establish that, in fact, they didn't arrest Gacy right away after he left the station. Hackmeister felt that it was important to confer with their superior officers prior due to the magnitude of the underlying case. So they continued to follow Gacy around for another few hours as he ran various errands. Hackmeister then testifies that Cram and Gacy drove to Cram's house at about 11.15 a.m. and that Rossi was there. 
and that the three of them went into Cram's apartment. He further testifies that Cram and Gacy leave the apartment at 11.45 a.m. and head to DeLeo's restaurant. Now, there's one very strange question that Sullivan asks Hackmeister about regarding a conversation that he had with Sergeant Lang. Question, and did you advise Lang about having been over at the attorney's office? Answer, yes, we did. Now, there were no follow-up questions asked by Sullivan at all to this question. None. And the question is not relevant at all to the issues at hand. Namely, was the arrest authorized? Did they have probable cause to make the arrest? Now, this odd little question about the cops being present at Amaranti's office during the meeting with Gacy has absolutely nothing to do with the two issues at hand. Now, you have heard our position during the course of this podcast about what may or may not have been said by Amaranti to Albrecht and Hackmeister as Gacy was leaving the office. Albrecht claims that it was something to the effect that if Gacy was getting away, that they should shoot his tires out. Hackmeister said that they could just tell by the look on the lawyers' faces that Gacy had just confessed everything. Now, we believe that it may have been even worse, but we can't prove it. And either way, we believe that it violated attorney-client privilege. Could this one little innocuous-sounding question have been an overt warning in open court on the record to Amaranti that he better back the fuck up and slow his roll or they will torch him in front of the entire world. Now, Garippa would have no idea what the meaning of the question was, and neither would my father, but Amaranti certainly would have. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. Nah, I don't think so. I think this was a direct threat from Sullivan to Amaranti to play ball. So Sullivan finishes off his questioning of Hagmeister, ending it up with the arrest of Gacy at 12.15 p.m. Amaranti then gets to redirect Hackmeister based on Sullivan's cross. Oddly enough, what do you think Amaranti questions Hackmeister about first? How about whether or not Hackmeister actually ever saw Gacy in possession of the weed, or if the owner of the station just handed it over to Hackmeister stating that Gacy gave it to Jacobson, which would be hearsay. That could all be very fertile ground. But nope. Question. Okay, officer. Calling your attention to approximately 12 midnight, 1 o'clock on the morning of the 21st, you stated that you were in the office complex at 222 South Prospect. Is that correct? Answer. In the area of the office complex, yes. Question. And you subsequently went into the office building. Is that right? Answer. Yes, sir. Okay, now the seats that you referred to were outside of the office itself, were they not? Yes, sir. Okay, and you were not stationed inside of the attorney's office, were you? That's correct. As a matter of fact, it was pretty cold out that night, wasn't it? Very cold. Yes, sir. Wow. I guess that confirms message received by Amaranti. 
Amaranti then goes on to ask multiple questions regarding the appropriateness of the jurisdiction of the arrest and where they ended up bringing Gacy after the arrest. Amaranti then begins to question Hackmeister about what he observed during the alleged weed handoff. Question, how much time elapsed from the point that you observed this to the time that you questioned Mr. Jacobson? Answer, about two to three minutes. Was he in your constant observation, Mr. Jacobson? During which time period? Well, during this observation, or during this two or three minute time period, from the time that this plastic bag was passed until the time that you questioned Mr. Jacobson. I had knowledge of his whereabouts at that time, yes. But he was not in your constant observation, was he? Not that I can recall. Did you in fact search Mr. Jacobson or... Did he hand you what you say you observed, Mr. Hackmeister? Did he hand you the plastic bag? No, he didn't. Did you take it out of his pocket? No. How did you get it? Oh boy, this is not going to go well. The first rule of cross-examinations is to never ask a question to a witness that you don't know the answer to. Why, you may ask? Well, because of this. Answer, Mr. Jacobson's boss gave me the substance. When was that? That would have been about two or three minutes after I observed Mr. Gacy and Mr. Jacobson. Did you observe Mr. Jacobson give the plastic baggie to his boss? No. So you did not know, in fact, that the bag you received from Mr. Jacobson's boss was the same bag that you saw Mr. Gacy pass, did you? Mr. Jacobson told me that it was passed to him by Mr. Gacy. My God, what a crash and burn. What started out as such a strong argument has now just plummeted to the earth, resulting in a huge fiery crash. Now, I'm not exactly sure what happened there, but I have a pretty good idea. I mean, Amaranti was sitting right there, presumably listening to Sullivan's cross-examination, where he had Hackmeister testify that the owner told him that Jacobson had given him the weed. And then, Jacobson subsequently told him that Gacy had given him the weed prior to giving it to his boss. What a clusterfuck. Message heard. Loud and clear. So, the defense's first witness, in its motion to quash the arrest, ends with a big thud. Rippo decides to take a lunch break at this point and will pick it up with further defense witnesses after the break. And we will be picking that part of the hearing up and the judge's decision on the next supersized episode of Defense Diaries. Hey guys, don't forget to subscribe, follow, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts and now on Spotify too. So tap those five-star reviews because people care about y'all and what you have to say. And I have to tell you that Darren and I read every single review that any of you have ever posted. And those amazing reviews touch us in the fields. So thank you. And if you haven't rated and reviewed the show, please take a minute or two to do so. And just know we will be eternally grateful. And finally, for this week's shout out, both Darren and I came down with COVID over the holidays, so we have struggled to get the last two episodes out to you guys. 
Sorry that this week's episode was slightly delayed. So thank you, D, for powering through the vid to get the show to the masses and for not having any type of dip in quality. And to our musical maestros, Taras and Ryan, thank you for the ear candy you've produced for the show. And to Alex and Corey for the amazing imagery that you've created for us. Also to Allie for doing everything that you do week in, week out. Also to our amazing sponsors, thank you, thank you, thank you. And to our awesome network, Cloud10 and iHeartRadio. We are so proud to be a part of the team. And to our beautiful patrons, new and old alike. Simply put, we love you. And finally, to you, our faithful listeners. Y'all are the best. For real, we adore you. And you know that without you, I'd just be some old man talking about an old case. Talking to you next time. Okay, we know where the body's at. You know, know exactly where the body's at.